Training camp is just around the corner for the Seahawks, a little over a week away, and they'll be looking for a few offensive players to be breakout standouts during the 2023 season. Which players on that side of the football have a chance to take a big step forward in 2023? Rob Rang and I are going to be diving in in our latest training camp preview on Locked On Seahawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast, your daily Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Glad to be joined for this latest Monday installment by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there, whether you're listening from Northern California or across the country in Connecticut. We greatly appreciate you making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Just a little over a week away from the start of training camp, but who's counting? We are going to continue previewing training camp, looking at some offensive breakout candidates. And then we're also going to be answering your questions on Monday Mailbag mailbag segment. And we're also going to look at numbers nine through seven. We break into the top 10 for our top 90 Seahawks countdown getting that much closer to the start of football season. This episode is brought your way by LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash NFL. That's linkedin.com slash NFL to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now for your lead story here on our Monday edition of Locked On Seahawks. Every year, all 32 NFL teams are looking for returning players to take a big step forward. It's a key ingredient to getting deep into the playoffs and winning a Super Bowl. You look at the last couple of teams that won, even the Kansas City Chiefs, their second Super Bowl in three years a year ago. For them to go out and get that title, they had to have some players who returned from the year before that took a big step forward. That happened in their offensive line. It happened in their receiving core post Tyreek Hill. The Seahawks are going to be looking for that type of growth from several players on both sides of the football. And on offense, Rob, it's a little tougher to find breakout candidates because there are so many established standout players on this side of the football. And yet it does feel like there are a handful of players who were on this roster last year that still have a lot of untapped potential that if they could get those players closer to that potential, it would really help this team's chances of making noise, not just in the NFC West, but the entire conference and maybe making a Super Bowl run. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of uh, describing this. Our our task ahead of us today, Corbin, is we're trying to find out those breakout players who were on Seattle's roster a year ago. So the flashy rookies like Jaskin Smith and Jigba or Zach Charbonnet, uh, Kenny McIntosh, they are not going to be among the candidates that we're going to be discussing today. Instead, it's going to be those veterans. It could be free agents that have been brought in, but it's going to be somebody that has already established a baseline in the NFL. 
that way they can have that breakout season. And, you know, Corbin, I considered a lot of different players here. I, I literally went through every single position. I'm sure that you did as well. Um, and I really kind of started off at the running back position. Uh, I think that the, the fact that you, you don't have Travis Homer, you don't have Godwin Aguibuque on the roster, then I really think that you can make an argument for DJ Dallas stepping into that fold. But at the same time, with the Seahawks using two of their draft picks on running backs, and because I really do believe that Zach Charbonnet and K. McIntosh might be able to have an impact, then I don't know that DJ Dallas is going to have that much of a huge breakout this upcoming season. I consider tight end. I consider the offensive line. Uh, at tight end, Will Disley and with Noah Fant. Corbin, they were two of the most efficient receivers in all of the NFL. Will Disley was literally the most efficient in terms of catches and how many times he was targeted of all of the tight ends in the NFL and no offense was right on his heels. So I can't really make an argument for those, either of those two veterans. So instead, almost by default, I'm going to go to D Wayne Eskridge. And I, <laughs> I see a player that has, you know, such dynamic athletic ability. And obviously the Seahawks decide to make a first round investment with Jackson Smith and Jigba. So there's a possibility that Eskridge, even if he has the first real true healthy training camp of his life in Seattle, that there's a possibility that he still doesn't get onto the field very well, very much, but I still see a guy who has such a, a different dynamic athletic presence to him than Jackson Smith and Jigba. He's not quite as uh, reliable of a route runner or as a hands receiver, but damn it, he gives you some explosiveness. He gives you straight line speed. He gives you return ability. Uh, and so that's why I do think that uh, this is the year that D. Eskridge is going to be able to have his breakout and prove that he was worthy of Seattle making him a second round selection a couple of years ago. Like you, I was weighing some other options here before I made my actual selection. And Eskridge is a name that I kicked around a little bit, and we've talked about him quite a bit. I just think Jackson Smith and, J Smith and Jigba's presence is going to make it tough for him to get enough snaps out there to really have a breakout season. We'll have to see. The talent is there. I'm going to stick with you on that. The talent is there for him to be productive. Colby Parkinson, I feel the same way, but we've talked about this several times in earlier episodes when are the tight ends going to get many opportunities to catch the football? And maybe Parkinson ends up having a big year catching a lot of touchdowns, and that would be a breakout season for him heading towards free agency next year. So Parkinson was my second selection, even though I don't think the targets are going to go up. In fact, I could see targets going down for him just because there's only so many passes to go around with all the weapons Seahawks have. But I'm going to go with somebody that – isn't the sexy pick here, but is going to be extremely important for the Seahawks to reach their potential this year. If you look at the offense a year ago, Rob, I think the biggest weakness was the interior offensive line. Now, Damian Lewis had a very solid third season, but Austin Blythe really struggled the second half of the year at center. And I just thought Gabe Jackson looked like a shell of his former self. He's got bulky knees, getting to be an older player. He gave up seven pressures in a game against the 49ers early in the season in week two. He was just a real problem, both in pass protection and run blocking. He was not able to maul people the way he did earlier in his career. This football team was better when Phil Haynes was on the field. The, the stats are undeniable. And obviously, this is not completely on Phil Haynes' shoulders, but they went 3-0 in the games he started. They averaged almost 120 rushing yards per game in the games that he started. And you go back and you look at the games that he was rotating in as a platoon guard and you take a tally of the successful drives. 
I have to go back and put all this together in terms of percentages, but I can just tell you based on the eye test that this team was a better offense consistently when Phil Haynes was in the lineup. He's only 27 years old. He is on a one-year prove-it deal. He's got so much to play for this year, and it's his first legitimate opportunity to be a starter. So I know that everybody wants to talk about Kobe Parkinson and D. Eskridge, maybe Derek Young. That was another name I kicked around a little bit, but he's even further down the totem pole in terms of receivers. I just don't know how he's going to get very many opportunities to catch passes in this offense either. But Phil Haynes has a great opportunity. He's going to go into camp as the starter at right guard. Anthony Bradford is going to be coming after that job, but I think Phil Haynes wins it. And I think he's got a chance to potentially play his way back into Seattle's long-term plans because he is only 27 years old, still a very athletic player that hasn't played a lot of snaps. So yeah, it's not the super flashy skill position guy, but in terms of importance for the Seahawks to get where they want to get, you got to boost that interior offensive line. And so I'm going with Phil Haynes, a guy that's got great athleticism with that basketball background. And I've seen enough the last two years. The two spot starts he had at the end of the 2021 season, Rashad Penny ripped off 170 rushing yards or more both those games. Who was a big reason why that happened? Phil Haynes, number 60 in the trenches. So I'm excited to see what he can do with this first legitimate opportunity to be a starter for the Seahawks at right guard still could be a long-term guy. And that's, what's exciting about that competition. You don't have a washed up veteran going up against an incoming rookie. You've got a guy in the prime of his career in Phil Haynes, who still could be a starter caliber player, but you've got extra competition now in Anthony Bradford, a really intriguing prospect to push him. So that should be a really fun competition to watch, but I like the veteran in that case to seize the opportunity. I think he's got a great chance to be a breakout candidate for the Seahawks this season. I guess we'll find out when training camp starts next Wednesday and we get into the preseason games, who ends up being that breakout player on offense. Coming up next, we're going to answer your questions here on our Monday mailbag segment. Tons of questions from the 12s off of our multiple social media platforms. We'll answer as many as we can. Coming up next here on our Monday edition of Locked on Seahawks, which is brought your way by LinkedIn Jobs. These days, every new potential hire can feel like a high-stakes wager for your small business. You want to be 100% certain that you have access to the best qualified candidates available. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the right people for your team faster and for free. When I was a site manager, LinkedIn Jobs was my go-to to post writing positions to land top candidates. They made the process easy and seamless all you have to do is create your job post and then add your job in the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word you're hiring. Simple tools like screening questions make it easy to focus on candidates with the right skills and experience so you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to Faster poster job for free at linkedin.com slash locked on NFL. That's linkedin.com slash locked on NFL to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Monday edition of Locked On Seahawks. We're getting closer to training camp, getting fired up about it. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined as always by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. For our everydayers out there, we're going to look at defensive breakout candidates on tomorrow's show, plus interior offensive line chatter, both the guard spots as well as center, continuing our training camp preview. going to be a jam-packed episode. Make sure that you are listening in. Let's get to our mailbag segment, shall we, Rob? We got tons of questions 
from our listeners, our valued listeners at that off of Twitter, YouTube, and we might even have one off of threads for this mailbag as well. So our first question here, and this one is coming from Jerry Sweet, and this was actually on Twitter. I messed up the graphic, those of you watching, but Jerry Sweet on Twitter, and he asks, is it reasonable to believe Geno Smith can be even better another full year as the starter, or do you think that's as good as it gets for the veteran quarterback? Well, at least in my opinion, Corbin, I think that it's absolutely reasonable to believe that Geno Smith is just scratching the surface of, of what he can do. And the reason for that is for many of the same reasons that we've discussed before. For one, I just have confidence in Geno Smith and in his talent. Um, I had to earn that or he had to earn that from me. As we've talked about so many times, I really thought that it might be Drew Locke. That, take, that took that position, but Geno Smith won it, and I thought that he played as consistently as I've seen even the best of the best quarterbacks in all of the NFL. You're returning the same play call. You're returning large of the same offensive line. You're returning the same wide receivers, the same tight ends. You've boosted the talent, the running back position, and you're playing against solid competition this year, but at the same time, not elite competition. I really think that Geno Smith should be able to duplicate or exceed his numbers from a year ago. Well, he has 105 million reasons to try to replicate those numbers as well, but they've put the skill pieces around him. They've upgraded. They believe they've upgraded at least that offensive line from the inside out. And all of that sets up for Gino to be successful working with Shane Waldron again. Next question from Savage Cookie tweets. Do you think we trade Trey Brown? And I think that these questions at this point, it's difficult to answer because we don't know what is going to happen in the next month or so with other teams in particular you know the Seahawks are still excited about Trey Brown but all it would take is for another team out there to have a starting corner go down with a significant injury and suddenly they've got a huge hole in their secondary and the Seahawks are one of the few teams in the league that I feel like has a surplus of starter caliber talent that position so Who's to say John Schneider couldn't get offered a fifth or sixth round pick for Trey Brown if he's your fourth or fifth corner on your depth chart? If you're getting offered a mid-day three selection from a team in August, you have to strongly consider that because teams don't normally give up that kind of draft capital. And Schneider's been able to do that in the past. If I had to guess right now, I don't think he's going anywhere. I think he's a guy that can play in the slot. They haven't given him that chance yet, but maybe that happens when they get to camp. He's been a good special teams player dating back to his time at Oklahoma. I don't see them just trying to ship off a corner or two unless they get blown away with an offer or somebody like Trey Brown just doesn't play well in training camp and then they're just trying to cut their losses and maybe they can get a late draft pick for him. But at this point, I'd be surprised if he gets traded at the same time. This is John Schneider, and he has made a lot of moves at the end of training camp in the preseason in the past. Our next one here for Rob coming from Max NFL tweets. It's September the 10th. The Seahawks just won the coin toss and kicked off with a touchback. Stafford is under center at the 25. I feel like I'm reading a play-by-play here. (laughs) Who are the 11 Seahawks players to start on defense? Man, that's a lot of pressure on you, Rob. Who are the 11 (laughs) players out there on the first snap? We might even have to have a little bit of a bet on this one after the show. Yeah, I'm just going to kind of, you know, rattle off from the defensive line down. I think that the the big three defensive linemen are going to be Draymond Jones, Cameron Young, um, and, and then then and then Jaron Reed. Excuse me. Uh, I, I think at the out at the outside linebacker, the pass rushers, you know, 
I think that Daryl Taylor is going to lead the Seahawks in sacks. I don't necessarily believe that he is going to start, but I'm going to stick with him for now. As a starter on the outside, obviously opposite Uchenu Nuosu. Uh, Bobby Wagner, of course, in the middle. I, I'm curious what they're going to do with that that other the other player in the front seven. If that's going to wind up being a, a Boye Mafia, it's, it's, it's going to wind up being a Devin Bush. And Devin Bush is the, a, a tr- more traditional linebacker. That's where I'm going to start off with for now. So so again, I have Draymond Jones, Jaron Reed, Daryl Taylor, George, uh, Bobby Wagner, Chenna Nuosu, uh, and then Devin Bush as my front seven. The two corners, Witherspoon and Woolen, the, the two, uh, two safeties being Quandre, Diggs, and for now, uh, I'm going to say Julian Love at, at this point. So I believe that's my 11. If, if I'm missing somebody, then I might need another nickel, another corner. Again, Jamal Adams, Julian Love, or Kobe Bryant. Yeah, there's certainly some injuries at play there. We don't know if Jordan Brooks or Jamal Adams are going to be ready for week one. We don't know if Brian Monet. I mean, it sounds like it's pretty clear he's not going to be ready at that point. But that clouds some of these projections here. We'll have to see in a few weeks where things stand. You might want to get a mulligan here in a few weeks when we start doing our next projection here. And I, I will jump in one second. I'm sorry, one quick mulligan. Mike Jackson. I, I said Kobe Bryant, Mike Jackson would be the number three corner in my opinion. Oh, interesting. That's a change up there. Mike Jackson. Well, maybe that means Witherspoon slides into the slot when they are in their nickel packages. Next question here from another Max. This is a totally different guy on YouTube. Has the window for signing Shelby Harris closed since Harris has familiarity with the system already? Would bringing in anyone other than Harris at nose tackle be a setback? So I'm not going to use that word. I mean, there are a few other veteran defensive tackles out there that you could sign that I wouldn't say are a setback or a disappointment. They might not be the familiar face. They might not be the same caliber player because I think Shelby Harris is a very solid starting caliber NFL defensive lineman. He has been for six plus years, but there are a few other guys out there. It's a pretty barren market. There's a few other experienced veterans that you could at least kick the tires on that. I wouldn't use the word setback, but I do think that they have to explore their options there. And if they can find a way to open up a little bit of money so they can bring back Harris. I mean, it sounds like based on his Twitter that something's coming soon. Maybe that's coming back to Seattle or maybe it's going back to Denver. Who knows what his next move is going to be, but it feels like that's still a position that they're going to have to be taking a look to see. Is there a veteran we can bring in to at least mentor Cameron Young? Because right now, I mean, you've got some veterans, but you don't have that true nose that he can learn from that's going to be active at least. And I don't know if Brian Monet is going to be taking on a mentorship role either because he's still a fairly young player himself and he's working back from a significant injury. Rob, we got a couple questions that I know you and I both want to answer And the first one here, Lawrence on YouTube, I got to give you credit. This is a really cool question off of our episode that we had last week talking Hall of Fame candidates. If you're a Hall of Fame voter and Pete Carroll and Mike Holmgren both are on the ballot, which one do you pick and why? I personally, Rob, think that this would be a really agonizing decision if I was a voter because you only get to pick one from the coaching contributor pool. You couldn't put both of them at the same time. 
Yeah, you can't put both of them at the same time. Fortunately, Mike Holmgren is is uh, eligible, and Pete Carroll, of course, is not. So that I'm just going to kind of take the easy way out. Um, if they, both of them were eligible, if I did have to choose one or the other, you know, I, I think I made my point in, in last week's show, Corey. But I, I really think that Mike Holmgren should be in the Hall of Fame. I think that Pete Carroll should be as well. But if I had to choose one or the other, I'm going with a guy that's gone to three Super Bowls in two different places, had to rebuild a couple of clubs. I think that Mike Holmgren nationally is vastly underrated. And I think that Pete Carroll still has an opportunity to get a few more people on his side to realize that he should be in Canton as well. You know, I, I feel terrible saying this because I want Mike Holmgren to get in the Hall of Fame. And I feel like he deserves to be there as much as any coach that isn't in Canton right now. But if I was given this difficult dilemma where I had to pick Carroll or Mike Holmgren, I would be putting Pete Carroll in, and I don't think it would actually be that difficult of a decision for me. I know their records are very similar, and Pete Carroll's start of his NFL career, he got fired after one year with the Jets, had a three-year stint with the Patriots where they had winning records two of those three years, but never experienced playoff success. He gets fired, Bill Belichick comes in, and he wins a million Super Bowls in New England, so the reputation wasn't good. Seattle, when they hired Pete Carroll, most people thought, oh no, not again, not giving this guy another opportunity. And yet he's only missed the playoffs two times the entire time that he's been in Seattle. Mike Holmgren missed the playoffs a lot more than that when he was in Seattle. I just think from a consistency standpoint that Pete Carroll has a more impressive resume in the NFL. And I'm not going to consider the college stuff too much because this is the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But at the same time, he won a BCS championship, had dominant teams at USC, and then goes to the NFL and has been dominant in Seattle. They've consistently made the postseason. They won a Super Bowl. They got to a second one. So it, it would be tough. I mean, both of them deserve to be in it. But I just feel like Pete Carroll's got a little bit more sterling resume when you look all the way around, especially with the success in the postseason, getting to the postseason on a more frequent basis than Holmgren did in his time with both the Packers and the Seahawks. And our last question here, really fun one, and this is pressing. Dante tweets, five favorite uniforms in the NFL, and do the Seahawks make the list? So, Rob, I'm going to dish this one over to you. We're going from talking football to talking uniform aesthetics. Yeah, yeah, I'm not so sure that you want to take fashion advice from me, Corbin. But uh, <laughs> my 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 favorite clubs, you know, I'm kind of old school, and, and so I just kind of like the what I consider to be classic ones. And I guess in a way, I should start off with the Dallas Cowboys because they're classic. But I hate the freaking Cowboys. All always have. So I will acknowledge that they have classic jerseys. At the same time, they are not among my five favorites. My five favorites would be the Green Bay Packers, the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Chicago Bears. Uh, I'll give the, the New Orleans Saints some credit. I love the regional aspect of the Fleur de Lay. Um, and, you know, I, I just think that that's really cool with New Orleans. That's one of the reasons why I, I've always loved Seattle's uniform, which is the, the regional and the indigenous people's uh, influence of the Seahawks original logo. Um, and even now this uh, you know more modernized logo, but that's one of the reasons why the Seahawks logo would be among my top five. It's actually my favorite logo in all of sports. That's not just 
because I grew up in Seattle in a Seahawks fan. I just think it's a really cool homage to the predecessors of the region and also still about sports. So again, for me, the other one would be the New Orleans Saints. And then I am a big fan. If I was get very specific of the Chargers, the, specifically the powder blue Chargers uniforms, big fan of that. And then how do you not mention the Raider, the Raiders insignia, whether they're in Vegas, whether they're in Oakland, whether they're in LA, I don't care. The Raiders insignia to me is again, one of the coolest, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, images in all the sports, in my opinion. I personally have never understood the love of the Raiders. I, I get it that they had the mean and nasty teams. They were dominant early NFL history, but like it's blah, it's black and silver and just it's blah. There's just, there's no substance to it. I mean, it would be in the middle of the pack for me. I've got the chargers at number one and I hate saying it because I, I hate what happened to San Diego fans and that the chargers are no longer there, but I love the powder blues and I love the fact that they brought back modernized versions of their seventies powder blues. Current uniforms are probably my favorites in the entire NFL. And it's unfortunate that they're not playing in San Diego, but that's number one for me. And then I've got a bunch of AFC North teams, Pittsburgh, the Steelers coming at number two. I know Seahawks fans are like, but they beat us in the Super Bowl. And I'm like, yeah, that's not part of this conversation though. It's the uniform. And as long as we're not talking about the retro Bumblebee Steelers uniform, <laughs> their regular uniforms are among the best out there. So I got them at number two. I got the Ravens at number three. I just, I love the dark purple with the black. That looks, that really sums up that black and blue division, the black and purple division. They just, it fits with all those matchups with the Steelers. I got the Cowboys at number four. I can't stand them either, but it's iconic. It has to be in your top five. And I got the Cincinnati Bengals at number five on my list. I really have always liked the Bengals uniforms. I, I like the helmets. I think they're some of the coolest out there with the Bengals stripes and their current uniforms. I really like the that they're a little more simplified, not as many flashy stripes, but it looks really cool. So I'd have the Bengals number five. Seahawks would be in my top 10, uh, but I can't put them above those five teams that I have to top my list. All right, we're going to get back to football here in a minute. We're going to continue our top 90 countdown with numbers nine through seven. It is a defensive loaded segment. I'm Corbin Smith, your host of Locked On Seahawks. Glad to be joined as always by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang, and a special thanks to all the 12s for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week, each and every week. We greatly appreciate it. Our everydayers out there coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk interior offensive line, guards, centers, how much better could that group be this year than a year ago? And, of course, we'll continue our 90-man countdown, inching closer to the top three most important players for the Seahawks in 2023. All right, Rob, let's continue our 90-man here. And this is going to be a very defensive-centric episode in this sense. We are getting to the cream of the crop on that side of the football and – we're actually going to start with a player who is the only one from this list that was on the Seahawks roster a year ago, Uchenna Nuosu, coming in from the Chargers, and he has been an ascending player. He's been taking baby steps every single season he's been in the league. Last year with the Chargers, had 40 pressures and five sacks. It was a sign of things to come. Nine and a half sacks, career high last year. 61 pressures, a pressure rate north of 12%. He was as productive as any pass rusher not named Nick Bosa in the NFC West. Had a fantastic season, and now he's going to a contract year with 
Plenty to play for. A lot of money on the line, either in Seattle or elsewhere. Seems to really like playing here and in the scheme that he pointed to as a big reason why he signed here to begin with. But certainly, he's got no shortage of motivation, even after a career year last year, to take his game to yet another level. And if he does, that could really help this defense turn things around after finishing 25th overall in scoring last season. Yeah, and I love the fact that you mentioned that that Chandler set the career highs in in the sacks and the pressures uh, from a year ago, Corbin, because I I really do think that he's got a chance to kind of build upon that production this upcoming season. Uh, a big part of that is because I do think that Seattle has more talent on the other side of him, and the fact that they have Draymond Jones, a, a pass rusher, is going to be able to provide some interior pass rush. So it's going to be much more difficult for opponents to be able to just kind of pick on Chandler. He was clearly Seattle's most consistent pass rusher a year ago. Wound up Taylor, uh, Daryl Taylor wound up being, you know, nipping him right there at the very, very end. But, you know, he was kind of more of a, just a pure speed rusher, whereas Chandler Nwosu can beat you in so many different ways. And that's one of the things that I really liked about him coming out of USC years ago and was shocked that he did not develop more quickly with the Chargers because they did play a, a 3-4 alignment, a tradi you know, relatively traditional 3-4 alignment. And that would have asked him just to kind of pin his ears back and attack. And that's what he does really well in that regard. He reminds me of the Seahawks latest uh, draft pick as, as far as pass rushers and Derek Hall. I mean, this is not a guy that runs around people. He runs through them. He is very, very physical. He uses hands very well, locates the football very well. The one thing I'd like to see him do a little bit more consistently is just kind of be a little bit, show a little bit greater awareness. I think the times that he, that Chenoweth, this goes back to his USC days as well, that he thinks he knows where the play is going and he just goes for it. And again, I think that that's one of the reasons why he creates as many big plays as he does. But I also think that that is one of the reasons perhaps the Chargers allowed him to go is because they didn't know if they could count on him. And we've seen the Seahawks, they, they did have their, their mishaps, especially in run defense, especially on the edge where you sometimes would see those outer pass rushers, whether it be Nuosu or Bruce Irvin was very much at fault for this at times as well. And just kind of dipping inside to try to be able to cut off running backs and then just leave leaving the gate wide open for running backs if they're able to make them miss to really be able to get huge yardage. So to me, that's where I think Janet Nuoso has to kind of, if he can, try to you know ease back a little bit, trust the system, trust his teammates a little bit. It's not all about him getting the big sacks. I do think that he's going to be an eight to 10 sack guy almost just based on just his own uh, physicality, his own talent and the scheme. If he is going to jump up to the 12-14 sack uh, plateau, that might be better for him. I don't know that it's necessarily better for the Seahawks. So to me, he is a fascinating player for Seahawks fans to be focusing on this season. As you and I know with instructor and coaching backgrounds, when you're talking about a guy like Uchina Nuosu that can make splash plays, and a lot of times he's right when he guesses on what the other team is doing, you have to kind of toe the line. And I think that's how Pete Carroll has always approached it with guys like Michael Bennett and Bruce Irvin, who more times than not, they were able to execute. And when they thought a play was going somewhere, they were right. But there were those occasional times where they got burned a little bit and you try to rein things back when those mistakes happen. But again, you want to try to toe the line because you don't want the player to suddenly not 
be aggressive or or not trust their instincts when we are talking about very instinctive players. And so it, it can be tricky. That can be really – that's one of the tough things in coaching that I don't think gets talked about a lot with players like that that have special talents and instincts and you don't want to take that completely away from them. you got to find a way, can we maximize – those opportunities where you take those shots, as Pete Carroll likes to call it, taking shots, uh, to see if you can get in the backfield and make plays. Nuosu certainly had some mishaps in that regard, but overall was a pretty solid run defender, at least compared to what most of the team performed like in that regard. As you mentioned, something is going to help Nuosu and the other edge rushers. When you have interior rushers that cause problems and are consistently disruptive. It opens things up for everybody else, particularly those guys on the outside. That's what Jaron Reed did for Frank Clark in 2018. We saw it with Jaron Reed and Carlos Dunlap after they got him from the Bengals. You you really create havoc when you're getting that interior rush. And it just makes it harder for outside tackles to be able to block guys. And that's one of the reasons that Draymond Jones's arrival is so exciting for the Seahawks because he is one of only four defensive tackles in the NFL the last three years, Rob, to have at least five and a half sacks in each of those years. He's gradually up his pressures as well. He went from 30 to 35 to 45 over the last three seasons. And I think maybe the thing that isn't talked about enough, and if you're somebody that reads pro football focus and looks at their grades and stuff, Draymond Jones has never gotten good grades. In fact, he's gotten poor grades defending the run, but I'm just going to say this after watching every single game he played in last year. I had a hard time finding very many run plays where I was like, you know, that that could have been better. There weren't very many examples like that. And I guess the issue is he's not a guy that's going to two-gap consistently. That's not his game. He's a 282-pound defensive tackle that wins with his athleticism, his quickness, his penetrating ability, but he's so good at that. And there were so many plays in the backfield, including in goal line situations where that quickness showed up and his disruptiveness. Seattle didn't have that from the interior of their defensive line last year. So he might not be that traditional guy that's going to eat up blocks, but that's not why you're paying him $51 million the next three years. Rob, you're paying this guy to live in the backfield and open things up for everybody else around him. That's the style of attack mode defensive tackle you have here, not just rushing the passer, but defending the run. So I do think that he has the talent to be a guy that can really help that run defense out, even though the narrative might not suggest that. No, I 100% agree with you that he absolutely has the talent. I think that he is going to make the biggest impact of all of Seattle's new additions this year. Um, you know, Bobby Wagner, I think, is going to get a lot of attention. Obviously, he is, you know, has played most of his career in Seattle, so people know what he can do already. But I don't know that many people who are wearing Seattle uniforms right now, as far as fans and and, and that ilk and, and the national media, I don't think that anybody really has an idea of how big of a sign that Draymond Jones is. I, I, I again, I, as I said before, I think I do think that Daryl Taylor is going to wind up leading the Seahawks in sacks. I think that boy that Uchenna Nuosu is very likely to be right there with him. But if I was like betting, if this is you know in terms of you know favorites and underdogs and things like that, then I think. A real dark horse is Draymond Jones because he is going to provide that interior pass rush that you kind of know, uh, mentioned a moment ago. And you're absolutely right. The impact that, say, Jaron Reed had on Frank Clark and that Michael Bennett had on Cliff Averill. And I mentioned Michael Bennett because that's who Draymond Jones reminds me of in so many ways. And he's just his quickness, the way that he pairs his hands and his feet uh, with 
with Michael Bennett, one of the things that used to frustrate, I think, all Seahawks fans is how damn often he was offsides. I mean, he was just trying to anticipate the snap count, and he would jump so frequently. I don't see that with Draymond Jones. I, I see quickness, but I also see an ability to kind of win with strength, win with technique, win with quickness, win with flexibility. Um, there's not many defensive tackles that you see dip and get under the edge rusher or, un, excuse me, under the the, the, the the offensive lineman trying to block you. He really has some flexibility in his core that's very unusual for defensive linemen. Um, and, and so I'm really excited about him. I think that he is a perfect, a perfect player for today's modern offenses that are all about the passing game. He is at 6'3", 285 pounds. When he came into, you know, he came in the draft, he was 281 pounds at Ohio State's Pro Day, and he ran a 504. And that's not a great time for a guy 281 pounds. He is not an elite athlete in terms of the stopwatch and things like that. And, you know, I, I made the comparison a couple of moments ago to Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett didn't get drafted in part because he was, you know, had such poor workouts. But damn, the guy could play ball. Draymond Jones can play ball. I think he's going to be an absolute superstar for the CX. I think this was a huge, huge, huge signing for them. And arguably the single biggest reason why the Seahawks, in my opinion, are a, a Super Bowl, uh, at least contender. I don't know that they're in the favorites, but I think that they have a chance. And the biggest reason why is because I think that they're going to be able to be more forceful against the run and the pass alike. And the single biggest reason for that is the addition of Draymond Jones. This last player on our countdown today coming in at number seven doesn't really need an introduction, even though he is a new player after playing for the Rams last year. Bobby Wagner played his first 10 seasons in Seattle. He's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. The guy every year, 100-plus tackles, all-pro selection. Last year was a second-team all-pro, and some people have said, eh, he didn't deserve it. I don't know what you were watching. I don't know what games that you watched, but – Maybe the Rams utilized him differently, but that doesn't matter. He was still making tons of plays, had a career high in sacks, had two interceptions, 140 tackles all over the field. And he was playing in a team that was depleted by injuries. He didn't have Aaron Donald in front of him for most of the second half of the season. And it didn't matter. Bobby Wagner continued to make plays. And that shouldn't surprise anybody. He's been doing that since the first day that he walked Onto the practice field of the VMAC is he's just made plays. He's been a consistent leader. And that's really what I think is the biggest deal with him coming back. You're going to get the production. He's going to help a ton with your run defense. Even if he doesn't have quite as many impact plays, he did have 10 tackles for loss last year. So he showed he could still do that. Will the Seahawks utilize him correctly so that at this stage of his career, he can still make plays like that? We'll have to see what they end up doing, mixing what he did well last year with their scheme and maybe some of the stuff they did with him previously. But the leadership aspect, can you imagine, Rob, how different of a conversation we'd be having about the linebackers if it was looking at, well, Jordan Brooks might not be ready for week one and they don't have Bobby Wagner they lost Cody Barton. Well, maybe John Radigan or Vi Jones will be starting with Devin Bush. How different of a discussion we'd be having, having that rock-solid veteran leader who, oh, by the way, is one of the best linebackers ever played the game and is still a top-10 linebacker in the NFL at the age of 33. That is a huge addition for this defense. Might not be as impactful production-wise as what Draymond Jones is, but we know that Bobby Wagner is going to bring his hard hat and he's going to bring leadership skills that this football team definitely needs going into this year. 
Yeah, Bobby Wagner's been so good. He's easy to kind of forget in a way. You know, I, I feel like I, I was one of those who was critical of his final year in Seattle um, because there were some missed tackles and, and we weren't seeing those those big impactful plays. Um, but he certainly demonstrated that in LA a year ago. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with Dallas Corbin and, you know, and, and the Rams just employed Wagner in a very different way. And I think that that was definitely some of it. I also think that you saw number 45 for the LA Rams, obviously number 54 here in Seattle. Um, you saw a very angry Bobby Wagner. And when Bobby Wagner is upset, I think that he is back to his younger days, that he is that impactful. He just plays with a different level of physicality and intensity. Um, you know, I had the, the great opportunity to see uh, the Rams with Bobby Wagner during training camp. And it was just impressive to see the way that the even on his new team with the Rams, the way that veterans and young players alike flock to him. He's got natural leadership ability. And I mentioned that because I do think that that's one of the way one of the reasons why Seattle brought him back, because I think that, they, that John Schneider and Pete Carroll had the same concerns that you just talked about before with Jordan Brooks hurt. Um, and with Devin Bush, John Radigan, By Jones, I mean, you needed a leader there at the linebacker position. And I don't know if there's a better one in the franchise's history than Bobby Wagner to play that role. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Subscribe and follow Locked On Seahawks on YouTube and wherever you listen to your podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode coming up tomorrow, every day or we are going to be breaking down the interior offensive line, the guards and the centers in our latest training camp preview. And we'll break into the top five in our 90-man countdown as well. Going to be a jam-packed episode. Hope you'll be joining us. Thanks for listening in and enjoy the rest of your Monday. Go Hawks.